for God's blessing and help as we turn to the word. Let's seek the Lord together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, your living word, and we pray that you'd speak to our hearts through it, Lord. We pray that you'd enlighten us, Lord, to the glories of our Saviour and his wonderful work. I pray for the help and power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, so much. Lord, human power is not enough to do justice to the text of your word, especially what we're looking at this morning. And therefore, I I throw myself on you, Lord, for every enabling, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're turning this morning to Isaiah in chapter 53. So please, would you open your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. We're looking at verse 10. Uh, but this morning I think I'll read verses 10 to 12 just to give some background to this. And uh, just to give a little advert for tonight's sermon, um, tonight I'm going to attempt to look at the Ukraine crisis from a biblical perspective. Alright, so if that interests you, then I hope that uh, you'll come along this evening. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge... My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Well, this morning I would like to start a a mini-series for when I'm preaching uh, uh, on Sunday mornings especially. And we're going to be looking at what I call the deep end of Isaiah 53. In my mind, I think of Isaiah 53, this great prophetic chapter about the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, his suffering given in the 7th, about 8th century, between 7th and 8th century BC, I think of this chapter as being rather like a swimming pool at the public baths. You know, it starts off at the shallow end with things that everybody can understand. He was despised and rejected. He was pierced. He was nailed. But as it goes on, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And when we come to the last three verses, which actually in Hebrew is one stanza. This is one verse in the Hebrew. It's three verses in our English, uh, we come to the deepest part of all. And I have to be honest with you, when I've looked at this, I've thought to myself, well, what does that mean? What does that mean by, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many? What, what does that mean? What does it mean that he will divide the spoil with the strong? I guess most people could explain uh, the fact that he was pierced, but what do those things mean? Well, those are the deeper parts of the uh, part of the chapter of Isaiah 53. And so I want us to look at this and, and hopefully this will take us up to Easter and prepare our hearts for that time of remembering the Lord's saving work. 
And especially you'll notice the theme of these verses, and this opening verse especially as we, as we come to its last part here, is what I call Calvary's turnaround. A great turning around uh, after the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. You know, people love a turnaround story, don't they? Here's a story I read in the paper. A man called Paul Mealy saw his cat he got from a rescue home uh, coming towards the patio with a mouse in its mouth. Now, my mom's got a cat that catches a mouse for her every day. <laughs> and uh, this is so real. And this cat has got his prize, got the little mouse in its mouth. But what happened next, you wouldn't believe unless he had had a camera to film it because the cat put the mouse down. They never do it in straight away. They want to play with it first. And uh, the cat put the mouse down and the mouse took control of the situation. And the mouse started making noises and the cat was subdued by this mouse. And for 20 minutes... The cat and the mouse lay next to each other as friends and in the end the mouse got up and ran away. Now that's one bad cat as a mouser. But but what a turnaround for the situation for the mouse. What an amazing story. Well, here we have the greatest ever turnaround at Calvary. Uh, What happened at the cross and then what happened afterwards. And as we see in the first two thirds of this verse that we're looking at today, just verse 10, we see the, the really the, 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 some really heavy things about the cross and Calvary and about the Lord Jesus Christ. It then takes an upturn at the end and the situation turns around. So I'd like you to examine this with me and uh, open your heart to the truth of God's word. First thing I want to draw your attention to here is the satisfaction of the cross in verse 10. Because it begins with these words, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Recently I I found an article in a newspaper which was warning theological students going to some of our big universities, perhaps don't study the cross. And I was quite shocked at that because the cross is the centre of Christianity. And uh, they said, no, you will find it too distressing. And I have to be honest with you, that's the first time I've ever seen anybody uh, say that about the cross. But I wouldn't put anyone off studying it. But they're right, it is distressing if you really stop and think about what happened at Calvary. If you come to the, ca- the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ in a superficial way, you can read it breezily and uh, not be moved by it. But if you stop and weigh it up and see what was really happening, it's bound to have some effect upon you and move you. And especially this opening verse here in verse 10, uh, this opening phrase, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The King James Version says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And many of us would find it hard to hear of the cross in those terms, that it pleased God the Father to crush the Son. What does that mean? Well, the word crush there is the Hebrew word daka, and it is the word that's used for a 
a, a trampling. So you remember when there was that awful trampling in Israel recently uh, at one of their minor Jewish festivals and there was a stampede and all those people got killed in the crush. That would be the word they'd use, Dhaka. It's to be crushed under a great weight. And this is something that had been said earlier on in the, in the chapter. If we come back to verse 5, a more familiar verse for many of us, it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He bore a burden upon him that was crushing in weight. Here's a newspaper story that uh, absolutely shocked me when I read it. This poor guy, Daniel, uh, I think his name's Daniel Williams, uh, Daniel Miller, he was uh, working in a rural area in in a digger, and the digger toppled over and he fell out and the digger ended up on top of him in a pool of muddy water. He was trapped under three tons of digger pressing down on him with just his nose and the top of his mouth poking out of that for five hours. What a terrible ordeal. And he was shouting out and eventually a neighbor heard him and came to his rescue. What a terrifying experience. But I want to say, even that doesn't compare to what the Lord Jesus went through on the cross. Because on the cross, the weight of God's judgment fell on Christ in crushing force. What a weight of judgment came down on the Saviour. And perhaps the most shocking thing is that it was God who put it there. It wasn't man. When we're talking about the cross here in Isaiah 53, we're not talking about what the Romans did. We're not talking about what the Jewish people did. It says it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. It pleased God, according to the King James Version, to crush him and suffer. That's, you know, that maybe the cross is a bit more disturbing than perhaps we ever thought before. The weight of sin being put on Christ was a crushing force. And this is typified many times over in the law of Moses and in the the rituals of the various events. For instance, if you remember in Exodus chapter 17, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they had no water. And they were, they were choking up because of, uh, of, of lack of water. They were thirsty. And God told Moses in that chapter, take the elders and take your rod which brought the plagues on Egypt and strike the rock in front of the elders and the water will flow out. Well, that's a picture of what God was doing at, at Calvary. The rod of God's judgment was falling on the Lord Jesus Christ so life-giving power could come out of him for us. And uh, just like the elders had to be there, the priests were there watching Jesus die on the cross. Another picture of this is in the incense they used to use. When the priest came into the tabernacle, he would bring not only uh, that they would come by the blood of the sacrifice outside, but he would come in with a tray, a little like a fire pan, and it would have incense on it. But he would then put that on the golden altar and it would rise up like a plume of smoke as he prayed and he would make 
intercession. But you know how they had to make that incense? They had to crush it. They had to crush it. It's a picture of what Jesus was going through. So we can come to God in prayer. We can have access to God. He had to be crushed. There was a never uh, sacrifice called the meal offering in Leviticus 22. And it was made by grain. And it said in the law that the, the grain had to be scorched in the fire. And it had to be bruised. Crushed. The same words that's used here. It's a picture of what had to happen with the Lord Jesus on the cross. Such a weighty judgment had to fall on him. And it was the Lord's will that this happened. You say, well, well how can this be? How, how can this be God's will? Why did God want such a thing to happen to his beloved son? I mean, if I had a son, and I do have some, I would be the last thing I'd want to happen to him. And I would be the one, not want to be the one to do it either. But the father and the son in covenant agreement, planned this way of salvation in eternity past. And God the Father was pleased to go through with it because by this means, his wrath could be satisfied and sinners could be saved. You know, false teachers hate this. False teachers hate this. Remember old Steve Chalk? He called this cosmic child abuse. They hate it. The emerging church people, they hate it. One writer uh, by the name of uh, William Shannon in a book called Above All, he said this. He said, the God who exacts the last drop of blood from his son so that his anger evoked by sin may be appeased is not the God of Jesus. He does not exist. That's a modern Christian view. And you know, we're going to close this service today by singing that hymn in Christ alone, which talks about the wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus. You know, many hymn books have now changed that. They say so that the love of God is, is magnified. They can't handle the wrath of God being satisfied. But I want to tell you, that's what Isaiah 53 tells us was happening at the cross. The Lord Jesus had to be bruised and crushed under the weight of God's judgment so you and I can be saved. I want to ask you a question this morning. If you're a believer, are you thankful for what the Lord Jesus did for you? That he bore that burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone and bore the price for our sins so we could be saved. A price we could never pay. Because if he hadn't paid for it, that price would fall on us. And if you're not a Christian here today, I want to say to you, do you realise the price that you will pay? Because this is what hell is about. The crushing burden of God's wrath, unappeased, without a saviour to rescue you. This is what will come on you. The Lord Jesus knows what is ahead of you if you don't turn to him. That's why he went to the cross. So you could have a way of escape. To be saved. So realise the, the glory of what the Saviour did. In the satisfying of God's wrath. For our sins. When he died there. On the, on the cross at Calvary. Second thing I want you to see here. Is the soul suffering of the cross. That the Lord Jesus went through. Because verse 10 goes on. And it says. And though the Lord makes his life. A guilt offering. So the verse starts to, to, to turn, but it says the Lord makes his life a 
guilt offering. Now, the word life there in Hebrew is the word nefesh. And your life is your soul. And it's the same word for a soul. And other translations do use the word soul and say that that the Lord made his soul an offering for sin. And actually, even if you're using the NIV, you can see this because in verse 11, we're not coming to this part, but this is uh, still nevertheless mentioned. Verse 11, it says, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. Can you see there what we're talking about is the soul suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, though the Lord makes his life, makes his soul a guilt offering. And this is a neglected part of Calvary that most of us never think about or are unaware of, is the soul suffering of the Lord Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, went as far as to say the soul suffering of Christ was the soul of his suffering. It was the deepest part of what Christ went through when he went on the cross. His body was like the tabernacle. Do you remember he tabernacled among us? On the outside of the tabernacle in the courts, that's where the sacrifice was made and the blood ran outside. But inside, in the most holy place, that's where the sacrifice was offered to God. The priest brought the blood into the tabernacle, into the most holy place, the inner place, and he laid it, poured it before the mercy seat uh, that the sinners may be saved. Well, this is what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. What they saw on the outward was the nails going through his hands and they saw the the scar in his side when the soldier put his spear in. They saw the whipping marks on his back and they saw the crown of thorns and the blood and they heard the cries. What they didn't see was what was inside. No human eye could see that. But Isaiah 53 takes us into the most holy place And tells us that God made his soul an offering for sin. This is a dimension of Calvary that you hardly ever hear spoken of. And we hardly ever really understand. There's a lady I read about some time back in in Reader's Digest. Alan isn't here to make fun of me about that. But uh, this lady was a Jewish lady. And uh, she had to go to the psychiatrist because she had a problem with feelings. And the, doc, the psychiatrist said, well, what are you feeling? She said, that's the problem. She said, what is a feeling? And her problem was this. Her parents were Jewish and her parents were Holocaust survivors. And every time anything happened, and you know how much children whine and grizzle, every time anything happened, they said, are you hungry? Are you clothed? Are you alive? Then don't complain. Because they had been through starvation, shame, brutal treatment, facing death. And to them, anything else was nothing. And understandably, we can understand that when we think what the parents had been through. But for the child, that was psychologically damaging. And every time the child came home as a teenager saying, I'm depressed, are you hungry? No. Are you clothed? No. Are you alive? No. You've got nothing to complain about. She grew up like this. She grew up without feelings, unable to relate things. She went to psychiatrist. What is a feeling? (laughs) That's how how she ended up feeling. I wouldn't tell you the Lord Jesus was not like that. The Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was a man of deep feelings. 
I, I, I bear my emotions sometimes. But you know what? The Lord Jesus had deep emotions. We see him in the Gospels angry at the hard hearts of the Pharisees when he's in the, temp- and he's in the synagogue and he wants to heal the man with the withered arm. And they're just waiting to criticise. They'd rather keep that man. Or with the woman with the, the bent back. 18 long years Satan has kept this woman in bondage. And they're more fussy about their Sabbath rules being broken on the, in the synagogue. Jesus was angry. Another time in Luke chapter 10 when the 70 come back from their mission after he had sent them out in the power of God. They came back saying even the demons responded when we used your name Lord. And you know what it said? It said he had joy in his spirit. He was a man of emotion. He had a soul. He had a feeling inside him. And when he went to the cross and he bore our sins on the cross, he didn't just bear it in his body, he bore it in his soul. The inner man, the deepest part of a person. You know the pain you feel when you go through a difficulty in life. Some of you have been through things I never want to go through and my heart goes out to you. You know the feeling inside. Well, I want to tell you, the Lord Jesus went through depths that no man has ever been through. When he bore our sins on the cross, his soul was made an offering for sin. One writer put it like this. He said, Christian people can never appreciate enough the comprehensive nature of the agonies of Christ as he took upon himself the very feelings that they deserve to suffer. It is beyond the compass of the human mind, especially when it is remembered that he bore the compounded desolation of many millions. That's what Christ went through. The hymn writer put it like this. None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night the Lord passed through before he found the sheep that was lost. He bore in his soul the suffering for our sin. And his soul became a guilt offering, a trespass offering. In the tabernacle, the trespass offering was the most comprehensive of all the sin offerings. And it paid for it all. And this is what Jesus' death on the cross was for us. I'll tell you, friend, if you think today that your sins haven't been paid for in full. That somehow there's still something for you to make up for. You haven't understood the depths of Calvary yet. Christ went right down. Right down into death itself. Into hell itself on the cross. uh, In in the sense of his sufferings. And bore it in his very soul for you and I to be saved. Oh, how we should say, hallelujah, what a saviour. And now we come to the upturn and the turnaround because here we come now to the success of the cross. And the last part of verse 10 turns around and it says, He will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The wonderful thing about Isaiah 53 is it doesn't just tell us what Christ suffered, it also tells us Christ's rewards afterwards for his saving work. 
And this is the major theme of this last stanza. And uh, I can't wait to preach some of these verses and tell you about the rewards Christ will receive. But here we see the cross is seen as a success by means of what God gives him in return. And there's three things spelt out in this last clause. We have his ransom people. Look what it says. He will see his offspring. The King James Version, I think, says it better. He will see his seed. He will see his seed. The seed of his, of, of his suffering. You know, in the biblical days, one of the things that was most important to people was to have children, wasn't it? We remember the, the barren wombs of people like Elizabeth and, and how she wanted a child. And when John the Baptist was born to her, she said, you've taken my disgrace away from me. I, I've got a child now. And to have children was a blessing from God. Some of the Psalms, uh, Psalm 128, talk about the man of God. He has a quiver full of arrows, which are a picture of his children. It's a blessing. Well, the reward for Christ's saving work is he will see his seed. He will see his offspring. Now, this isn't biological because it's not by biological means. As John says, it's not by the will of man but it's born of God. And this is talking about believers who trust in Christ as a result of his saving work. They will be saved. And they are born of his seed. And he will see them. And this is, a, this is wonderful. We're going to come on to this in verse 11 again. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He's going to see the people he redeemed. And they are going to be with him in heaven. And he will see them for all eternity. I'm seeing some of them now. Do you realise his face will be on you for eternity? I bought that one. I bought that one. I bought that one. She's precious to me. I laid down my life for her. I paid my price, the price for him in his blackest sins. It doesn't matter. I paid for it in full because I wanted him. The seed of the Messiah will be his reward. What a joy that will be to him. And you know what? He will see them for eternity and he sees us now. As you go out that door, you're going to go out watched. Maybe the neighbours will watch you. But even if no neighbour watches you, he will see his seed. Some of you are going home to an empty house. But you're not unwatched. He will see his seed. He will see you. When you wake in the night, when you get up, when you get up in the morning, he will see his seed. His eye is on you. This is his reward. He is going to be so pleased. This is a part of the joy that was set before him to bear the cross. What a wonderful reward. He has ransomed people. Not only that, but his resurrected life. And uh, this is implied in the next part of the verse. It says he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Another blessing to those who were the righteous in the Old Testament was not only to have children, but to have length of days. Psalm 91, with long life, I will prosper him. And this is going to be given to the Lord Jesus. Now, can you see in Isaiah 53 how actually we're not told explicitly, but what we're told is Jesus will not only die, but he will rise again. The one who's going to die will see his seed. He will see the offspring from his death. And his days will be prolonged. He'll have eternity. And this is the length of days that will be given to Christ 
after his resurrection. That's wonderful, already hinted at. And then finally, his righteous kingdom is a part of his reward. And we see at the end here, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now notice that phrase, the will of the Lord. That was used earlier on, it was the Lord's will to crush him. But it's the Lord's will here to prosper him as well. And he is going to have a kingdom when he's risen from the dead. And he has a kingdom now and he is going to come into the full measure of his kingdom when he returns and sits on David's throne at his second coming. And the will of the Lord will be God's will done on earth. This is what we pray, isn't it? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, it's going to happen. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus reigns, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And God's will will be done. You know, when Joseph was over Potiphar's house, it prospered. And even more, when he was raised to the right hand of Pharaoh, Egypt prospered. Even in a famine, Pharaoh prospered because Joseph was at his right hand. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And the kingdom will be glorious because Christ reigns. And his hand is a picture there of his power to rule. And uh, you remember it talks about the hand of Moses did this and the hands of David did that uh, in the scriptures. By his hand, the will of the Lord will prosper. This ought to encourage us very much. Spurgeon said uh, in one of his uh, sermon expositions on this passage, do not be afraid then about the kingdom of Christ. Its interests are safe enough for they are in the hands, in his hands, and God has given the promise that of his that his pleasure shall prosper there. So as we're looking at the church in in the world today, seemingly struggling, and especially in the war-torn country of Ukraine, don't be afraid; it'll prosper in His hand. Still, His kingdom will not fail. So, what a mighty saviour we have, and what mighty success is given to Jesus as a result of the cross and he did that to open it for us charles spurgeon said his theology could be summed up in four words he died for me and i want to tell you that's how you can sum up the whole of isaiah 53 as well he died for me and i want to tell you there can be the greatest turnaround in your life if you will put your trust in the one who died there for your sins. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. It's my prayer that you will do that even today. Well, we're going to 